University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. So occasionally you come across a piece of information that seems so outlandishly crazy to be true, you have to share it with others. As a, as a student of history, I giggled recently when I found out this interesting fact. According to Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian at the Battle of Pelosium, at 525 BCE, the Persian army used cats as shields. Yep, you heard me correctly. They used kitty cats as shields. The reason? The ancient Egyptians saw cats as sacred and were forbidden to kill them. So the next time you want to go into battle, get to know what cuddly and cute creatures your enemy holds dear, and then use them to prevent projectiles from hitting you. Is there anything more audacious than discarding the traditional shield and going into battle with a domesticated feline? We're in our series, Audacious, where we're looking at that every day we have the opportunity to do something audacious as prayer. Now, I can tell some of y'all are still stuck on that cat thing. <laughs> our cat-loving people are like, that's the most crazy thing ever. All the people that don't own cats are like, yeah, totally makes sense. So in our series, Audacious, we're looking at radical prayers that will transform your life. Each week, we are examining a different type of prayer and why it's critical for thriving. And we're not just learning about the different kinds of prayer, but we're challenging ourselves to put them into practice each day and developing a fiercer and deeper journey with God. And this morning, we're going to look at the audacious nature of the prayer of confession. And for this, we take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 9. It says this, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. That's a heck of an opener. <laughs> you know this is going to go really fascinating places when we don't even get to the parable yet, and it begins with that type of preface. And it's difficult to know who Jesus is speaking to. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. The context doesn't change as Jesus turns to speak to the disciples. So is he speaking to the Pharisees, or is he speaking to the disciples, or to both? Whomever the group, self-righteousness is going to be the topic of the parable. Usually self-righteousness is described as sanctimonious, holier-than-thou, self-satisfied, smug, uh, pious, moralizing, preachy, superior, or hypocritical. So take a look at verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. As Jesus' introduction wasn't polarizing enough, he then threw in two polarizing characters into the parable, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees is in the Gospel of Luke more than any other gospel. The Pharisees were not priests or rulers of the temple. They were actually lay or common persons. They believed and pursued the law given to Moses with a fiery zeal. And they thought that if we and the people around us could live into what the law was calling us to, then God would restore God's favor and restore Israel back to its former glory. 
And so they lived by every letter of the law and pursued it with a zealous passion to persuade others to do so. The Pharisees weren't exactly hated in Jesus' day. The Pharisees actually were favored among all the other religious leaders because they held the Torah in such high regards versus the the ruling elite that were in Jerusalem, the puppet rulers of Rome. On the opposite end of the spectrum were tax collectors. Without a doubt, they were the most hated group of people in Jesus' day. Tax collectors were Israelites who were hired uh, by Rome to go around and to collect taxes on behalf of the great empire. Money collectors are never beloved. But you put on top of that collecting taxes for Rome, they had the threat of Rome at the tips of their tongues, which gave them the ability to usurp extra money out of the people. And not only does collecting taxes make you a very unpopular person, but it was one of the more, uh, more reliable acts that actually caused you to go against the Old Testament law because you're constantly coming in t- contact with ritualistically unclean people and goods. So the very occupation defiled his religious obligations to the one true God. He was collecting taxes for the Roman imperial system, which viewed Caesar as God, and every day he was breaking that commandment that you should have no other gods before you. And it might be a shock to Jesus' listeners that a tax collector actually entered into the temple, but let's see what happens next in verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like those other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. The gut honest reaction to the Pharisees' pray could probably be summarized with this phrase. Well, he sees exactly what others are thinking inside. I mean, he isn't the kind of guy that, if you think about it, he's actually kind of right. The first century Palestine had its fair shares of lawbreakers, criminals, villains, despicable tax collectors. Therefore, why should he not label them for what they are? Some could even argue that the Pharisees' comparative ethics allows him to know what is right and wrong, righteous and immoral, godly and godless. And what the Pharisee is proving is that it's easier to judge others rather than ourselves. It's easy when you have a parade of characters out in front of you, as the Pharisee sees in the temple, all those robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and that corrupt tax collector over there. Can I get an amen that it's much easier to find the faults in others than to begin to consider our own errors? And just look at the media and politics and entertainment that we consume. Our, our, our lives live and die by an us versus them mentality. Oh God, I just want to thank you that I am not like those other awful, appalling, godless, unworthy, disgusting sinners. Me and my kind, we are doing our best to not be like them. And it's easy when religious people can just open the Bible and read off a laundry list of sins, translating into what we believe are godless heathen of our communities and our world. And whether we want to admit it or not, it's super easy to be the Pharisee in the story, to see everyone else for who they are, gross sinners in danger of the wrath of God. 
And you can't fully understand the depth of the Pharisees' pride without looking what happens at the conclusion of the story in verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The stark contrast between the two characters is so evident. The Pharisee is full of religious, self-righteous pride, considering only the errors of others while the tax collector is ashamed and contrite and confessional. He doesn't just remorse for his sins, but he's overwhelmed with sorrow. The guy is beating his chest with his face down to the ground out of shame. He ekes out a short phrase to God that he believes maybe God would listen to him. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a simple and yet telling confession. We have a confession in response to this. Oftentimes when we look at this man, we would think to ourselves, good for him, but not for me. Most people have a natural repulsion to owning their own mistakes, stating their errors, or confessing their wrongdoing. When we do something wrong, there are typically... Uh, typical two reactions we have that pull in opposite directions. On one hand, we might want to hide what we have done. If nobody finds out, then we don't have to feel bad about what we've actually done. On the other hand, you might just want to confess what you've done right along. And all humans are essentially ego-driven creatures. Starting at a very young age, we develop an identity, a a self-concept and self-image constructed by our beliefs and how we view ourselves. And most of us think of ourselves as pretty decent people, better than average in certain areas, maybe a little worse average and few, but always trying to do our best. And we believe that we see the world realistically and act rationally. And when our thoughts and behaviors or the accusations of others challenge our cherished self-conception, we experience what's called cognitive dissonance, a form of mental discomfort and tension. Cognitive dissonance arises when we attempt to hold conflicting beliefs, attitudes, ideas, and opinions at the same time. For example, that telling off that person with colorful four-letter words was maybe the best way to handle the situation because you didn't hear what they said and did to me. There was a study that was conducted that looked at whether people have a tendency to make partial confessions. Participants in an online study were sent uh, uh, to a website where they could flip a coin uh, virtually and predict how the coin would come out. They were asked to flip the coin 10 times. Then they were told to report the number of guesses that they got correct. In other words, before they flipped it, is it going to hit heads or tails? And they were paid 10 cents for each correct answer. In other words, the max they could ever earn was a dollar. Although the participants didn't know it, their their actions were actually uh, being monitored. So the experimenters knew whether they were telling the truth or whether they were cheating. And overall, 35% of the participants overreported the number of flips they predicted correctly meaning 35% of the people lied even though it wasn't to their benefit. Later, the study participants were given a chance to confess whether or not they cheated, and they were told that they would be based on what they reported, even if they reported that they had cheated the first go-around. 
And they were also told that there would be no negative consequences of admitting that they had cheated. And only 18% of the participants who cheated confessed. Meaning that 82% of the people continued to tell a lie just for a dollar. So yes, we are happy for the tax collector's confession, but maybe it's not for us. But look at what Jesus says in verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. To Jesus' original audience, socially, this doesn't make sense. How can the enemy of the state exhume such humility before God? Politically, this doesn't make any sense. How can a champion of God's cause be overshadowed by the unpretentious nature of a tax collector? Religiously, this doesn't make sense. Why would this despicable tax collector be justified before God? Jesus' audience would have been aghast. They would have been horrified and shocked and offended. And when you stop and think about it, Jesus is telling us that wrongness won the day over rightness. The despicable tax collector chose the right path while the religious leader chose the wrong one. But how? And why? Let's talk about what the tax collector gets so right about being so wrong. Let's start with his physical posture. That's where Jesus starts. He can't even approach the place of prayer out of his fear and his guilt. He's so overwhelmed with his life choices that he can't even look up to heaven. And as if his posture wasn't enough, the man is beating his chest out of shame. This reminds me of the ancient monastics and priestly practices of self-torture. In response to a monk's sin, he would whip himself or beat himself, believing that it was the best way to atone for his brokenness before God. It was an act of humility and an act of shame. And not only does the tax collector beat himself, but he cries out to God this powerful prayer, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's not a profoundly long statement. He doesn't compare himself to other people. He simply recognizes and embraces his brokenness. He begs God to have mercy on him. And this man was considered to be an outsider, unworthy according to his culture. Here's a man who would have lived perpetually, religiously impure because of his line of work. This man is a man who lived with an overwhelming sense of guilt by taking other people's money, and yet his wrongness is right according to Jesus. When we learn from Jesus that as much as it hurts, owning our mistakes is a pathway to thriving. The tax collector literally hunches over in shame, lifting up by God's love and mercy, freeing himself of the burden of his guilt and putting him on a new path to freedom. We've been taught that our mistakes mean that we've done something wrong and we have failed in some sort of way. But identifying actions and outcomes helps us succeed if we're willing to recognize them. Mistakes let us, yes, we stray in what we say and what we do, but paying attention to why we took those actions in the first place 
puts us on a path to freedom. And when we make mistakes, keep in mind that doesn't define who we are as a person. Try not to jump to the conclusion that you have no worth and value. No one's perfect, and that's okay. But ignoring and hiding our mistakes doesn't benefit anyone. And though it's tempting to avoid admitting them, not only to ourselves but to others, it's the wasted learning experience. It's human nature to avoid confrontation, but thriving, admitting errors is crucial. Imagine you begin to have some internal pain. Every single night you find yourself unable to sleep because of this nagging discomfort in a place that you cannot see and you cannot touch. So you decide to schedule a doctor's visit, but when the doctor asks you to describe to her what's wrong, you decide to respond this way. Well, I prefer not to tell you. Why don't you try to take a guess? Good luck getting the doctor to give you a proper diagnosis, and best of luck continuing to deal with that undefined pain. More often than not, if we work up the courage to confess our errors to God, we are terribly unspecific on what we are confessing. It probably goes something like this. God, I messed up. Please forgive me for what I've done wrong. Moving on. And we know that God is all-knowing. We know that God knows our shortcomings and our failures and our mistakes. But have you ever considered that being specific about why you are confessing is not as much for God as it is for you? The answer that we, conf- we don't just confess our sins just so God hears them, but we confess them so that we also hear them. Speaking is a more powerful way than just thinking about things. And God didn't just speak God spoke and the world came into existence. God spoke everything into existence. So there's great power when we're willing to name the things in our life. So too, words have power. When we confess our sins, we break down the barriers that block our soul. We, we let go of the toxins that poison our spirit. Most importantly, we engage God in our cleansing process so that God can purify our soul from the inside out. We should pinpoint specific errors, ask lots of questions to find out and interact with the actions of the mistakes that we made, and we begin to understand the how and the what and the why and the where so that in the future we don't make that same mistake again and again. Simply putting emotional turmoil into words changes how we think about it. Giving concrete forms to secret experiences can help us categorize them in new ways. Simply talking about a disturbing event helps us understand it better, and things we don't understand cause anxiety in our life. What bellows up from the tax collector's soul is a deep desire for God's mercy. He was fully aware of his guilt and his shame and his unworthiness. His humility made the grace of God a reality. And what justifies him, his deep recognition of his need for God's grace and forgiveness, his realization that he had a deep need for God. It's not the Pharisee, but the tax collector who is embraced by God's grace. Jesus said that the tax collector went away justified, not the Pharisee. You see, in our confession, God embraces us not with guilt and shame and judgment, 
but with grace. Confession makes God's grace a reality in our lives. See, God's grace is the gift of salvation and forgiveness from the moment that we embrace it and on to eternity. And God's grace is this eternal gift of redemption. It's God's continuous act of cleansing us from the inside out. And God's grace is the only thing that can accomplish what our soul longs for. And this should make up perfect sense when you think about it. If we believe, you, if we, believe we are right and that everyone else is wrong, if we believe that we have done all that we can to gain God's favor, then we couldn't be any further from the heart of God. Arrogance and pride and self-righteousness and delusion harden our heart for our need for God. But when we embrace our inner tax collector, we can truly humble ourselves before our God in our brokenness and our shame, and God fills us with grace and mercy. As awkward as it sounds, coming before God and humility is like stripping away everything we hide behind. Our arrogance, our pride, our self-righteousness, and it's like we're standing naked before God. And you see, God sees us all and knows us all. Every fraudulent act, every whiff of envy, every resentment, every act of self-deception, and throws it all out the window to clothe us with new clothes of righteousness. The scriptures declare some pretty powerful truths about confession. 1 John 1, 9 states, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just in our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28, 13 tells us, He who covers or hides or conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. James 4, 8 says, Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. But in our humility, our eyes become open to God's goodness. In our humility, we understand and embrace God's act of salvation through Christ. And God's grace is beautiful. Through God's grace, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. God gives us confession as a remedy for an anxious and guilt-ridden soul. Dozens of studies have shown that confession is linked to less stress, improved sleep, and improved cardiovascular function. We know that better sleep is associated with enhanced immune functions and better general health, which correlates to better mental health, too. It's like God made us to have confession. Psychologists call this benefit catharsis, a releasing or getting relief from repressed emotions. So may we come to see that a journey of God is more like being a tax collector than a Pharisee. May we come to see that confession leads to thriving. Or as the great Brenning Manning put it, the gospel is absurd and the life of Jesus is meaningless unless we believe he lived, died, and rose again, but with one purpose in mind, to make a brand new creation. Not making people with better morals, but to create a community of prophets and professional lovers, men and women who surrender to the mystery of the fire of the Spirit that burns within them, who will live ever greater fidelity to the omnipotent Word of God, who would enter into the center of it all, the very heart and mystery of Christ, and the center of the flame that consumes, purifies, and sets everything aglow with peace joy, boldness, and extravagant, furious love. 
This, my friend, is what it really means to be a follower of Christ. Through this series, we are ending the sermon each week by praying the corresponding prayer to the given theme of the morning. And repeating words does not mean praying the words, but allowing our heart and our mind and our soul to sink into the meaning of the words as you lift them to God who hears you is a powerful act of faith. So my challenge to you is that you will pray these prayers each day of the week. The prayers that we're going to pray this morning, you can find on the church website, you can find on the church newsletter, the window, which is also online. I invite you to join me this morning in praying these words as I pray them for us. Let's pray together. O you who have come to seek and to save lost things, buried things, I lift my eyes to you. Many have offered me a golden tomorrow. You alone offer to retrieve my yesterday. Restore to me the wasted places of my heart. Reveal to me the meaning of my failures. Show me that there was manna in the desert that even Cana did not hold. Then shall mine be a harvest of joy, a resurrection of joy, the joy of gathering the buried past. Then shall my heart be satisfied that the travail of the soul was autumn's gain. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.